All right. Well, good morning. It is great to see you guys. My goodness, it's so good and so weird uh, to like see actual people here. Uh, but it's great to be with you, great to be with you who are tuning in from home. Uh, I'm so used to actually kind of choosing to just look at the camera, and now I have to go back and forth. So we'll, we'll do our best here. But uh, yeah, it's good to be together. So I wonder, when, um, when you dream about the future, what do you dream about? What do you think about in those moments when maybe you're sitting quietly, imagining your life a year from now, five years, ten years? What do you imagine? Often, kind of as we imagine the future, it tells us a lot about our perceptions of what the good life or what success might be. So, so you might kind of sit back and imagine where you will be in your career a few years from now, what potential there might be for you to, to have promotions, new opportunities there. Or perhaps you, you imagine yourself with significantly more financial resources, being in a nicer house somewhere, um, having the kinds of things that you want. Maybe you think about retirement. Uh, and you imagine yourself not having any responsibilities at all, working on your golf game, um, whatever you kind of imagine that preferred future to be where you're not encumbered by work. And that's what you think about. Or maybe you just think about like what your kids are going to be like, and you dream about their lives and, and how that's all going to go. And then for some of us, we're kind of on the other end of that, and we're not maybe looking ahead 10 or 15 years. We're reflecting back and thinking about what our life has been. What are the things that make you proud or make you kind of struggle with regret? All of these things tell us what our vision of success or the good life is, what we imagine a life well-lived ought to be. And it's different for everybody. Again, for some of us, we think about career, for others, money, for others, family. For some of us, it's just the idea of being happy. But it's this question of success. How will I know when, when my life has been good? The challenge about all of those different ways, or one of the challenges, is that there are so many things that are outside of our control that can impact whether or not we achieve any of them. Obviously, we're all in the midst of a pandemic, and that's impacted us in a variety of ways, and this is well beyond our control. But there's so many things, right? It's one of the things, actually, that I've been really drawn to in this, uh, this series, WandaVision. I don't know if any of you have been watching that. I'm going to be really careful because I recognize the final episode just dropped on Friday, and a whole lot of us have not seen that yet. Um, I also recognize that probably a lot of you are like, what, what is that? So this is this, this new Marvel series that's recently come out, exploring um, the, the lives of Wanda, Maximoff, and Vision that, that they have together. And one of the main themes here that is just so fascinating is this exploration of how we respond when the future we've always dreamed of is ripped from us. What is our response to that? And in this series, we kind of see Wanda responding how many of us do, using whatever resources are at her disposal to try to control the situation, to try to make the thing that she's always dreamed happen, happen. And, and we see in it, of course, there's lots of comical aspects, but there's lots of tragic aspects, too. When we begin to try to control our world, when we try to make everything go the way we want it to go, 
inevitably, it doesn't turn out very well. Because the truth is, as people, finite creatures, we don't know the end from the beginning. Heck, we don't know the end from the middle or the near end. We don't know where it's all going. We don't even know the implications of all of our choices. We do the best we know to do, and sometimes we realize that the best we knew to do was actually not particularly helpful. There is so much beyond our control. And unfortunately, the more that we kind of try to grasp at control, the more we try to get to the future that we think we ought to get to, we end up hurting lots of people in the process. We don't often get what we want. And the more we try to control it, the more destructive it becomes for others and ourselves. We're in this series that we've been calling Cross Vision. And in it, we're, we're going through Lent and we're looking at um, Jesus' work on the cross, this climactic moment that all of his life and teaching was moving towards and all of our understanding of ourselves, God, the world, everything has been moving out from ever since. And we're asking the question, how does the cross shape the way that we understand everything? So first week, Dan talked about how the cross shapes the way we see God. Last week, we talked about how the cross shapes the way we see ourselves. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about how the cross shapes the way we see success or what we perceive to be the good life. And we're not going to talk specifically about the cross itself, but we're going to talk about this really critical event just prior to the cross, what kind of moves Jesus towards the cross in this significant way. We're going to look at a passage of scripture out of Luke chapter 22. Uh, 39 through 51. So I'm going to read it for you. Um, We'll also have the scriptures up on the screen so you can follow along both here and at home. Beginning verse 39. Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing... Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the twelve disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. So um, in this segment, in this um, situation, we see that Jesus and the disciples have pretty different visions of what success looks like. Now, you could forgive the disciples for being a little confused. Um, They've come to understand Jesus as Messiah, as the one who's going to save them and all of Israel. In fact, if you go back just a couple of verses, Jesus goes through the Passover with his disciples. Now, the Passover was this annual uh, remembrance meal that 
they, they, took, they partook together as Israelites, as Jewish people, to remember God's deliverance from another oppressive empire generations ago, the Egyptians. In the Passover, they remember how God had rescued them from Egypt. And Jesus led them through this meal. In fact, this is where Jesus gives us the, the communion, the Lord's Supper, what we're going to take together today, what we've been taking together all through this series. This moment of remembering Jesus' body and blood comes in the midst of remembering God's deliverance from Egypt. And as they're reflecting on God's salvation of their nation, his deliverance from Egypt, Jesus says to them, I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he says this really cryptic thing about what we are celebrating right now, this meal that celebrates your deliverance from oppression. I will not eat this again until we celebrate it in the kingdom of God. And so he gives this sense that there's this immediacy of the kingdom of God. And in their mind, they can only imagine that what this means is that deliverance is going to come from the Roman Empire before they celebrate Passover again, which is the next year. So sometime soon, Jesus is going to bring about deliverance. And so you can imagine in their minds, they're like, here we go. Okay, let's get ready. And so then Jesus goes and does what he does in the garden. The authorities show up to to arrest Jesus, and for the disciples, this doesn't make any sense at all. And so they respond the only way they know how. They pull out their weapons, and they cut off the ear of what they, they respond with violence, right? How do we control the situation? It's getting out of hand. This is not where we thought this was going to go. We have to do something. And so they respond with violence. Jesus rebukes them and heals the servant and allows them to take him. This doesn't make any sense at all if you're one of the disciples. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, here we were right on the precipice of achieving our goals, our vision, the thing that we and generations of our people have longed for was about to come to fruition. And now, that's all gone. It doesn't make any sense. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself thinking that. I have. Man, this just doesn't make any sense. This is not what I thought was going to happen. We often find ourselves in these positions where we're like, God, I thought this was the way this was supposed to go. I thought if I did the right things, I was the right kind of person, I raised my kids in this way, I made these kind of decisions, that it would just all work out. This doesn't make any sense. And while most of us don't respond, thankfully, with violence, we often respond like the disciples in that we try to take control. We look around and try to find whatever tools we have at our disposal to take control of the situation. But then we look at Jesus' response. We contrast what the disciples are experiencing with how Jesus responds in this moment. And what do we see? It's it's kind of a paradox, really. Here's Jesus who has spent his entire ministry kind of prepping the disciples for the cross. I mean, there's all sorts of imagery that Jesus uses kind of prefiguring 
what's going to happen. He knows this is where it's all heading. And yet, we see Jesus praying, wrestling with God, agonizing over this, this suffering that he's about to experience and saying, God, if there's any other way, if there's anything else, let's do that one. Any other plan? So much so that Luke says his, his sweat is dr- like drops of blood hitting the ground. And yet, he prays, I want your will to be done, not mine. The disciples respond trying to control the situation so that it turns out the way they want it to. Jesus responds saying, not what I want, what you want. For the disciples, success looks like victory. It looks like their dreams coming true. For Jesus, success looks like surrender. And this is what the cross teaches us about success in this really paradoxical, unexpected way is that we find success, we find life, not in grasping at it, but in letting it go. In the cross, we find that success is surrender. But it's not just kind of surrender, like, you know, let's just sit back and let the world happen to us. It's a particular kind of surrender to a particular God. There are two things I think we learn in this this image of Jesus wrestling and ultimately surrendering to God in the garden. And the first is this, is that we are not in control. As much as we would like to be, as, as much as we imagine that we would be, we are not ultimately in control. And this is a difficult move for us. It, it's scary not to be in control. I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I've been teaching one of my daughters how to drive. There are a few things that will... Uh, remind you of your lack of control as sitting in the passenger seat with your daughter as she's learning uh, the intricacies of stop signs and blinkers and not dying in a fiery heap of metal. Um, I'm sorry, was that extreme? Anyway, so, uh, but I recognize when I'm taking, when I'm driving with my daughter that I, I am not in control, which is why I often find myself responding like yelling at her because of decisions that she makes or like smacking the side of the door and, and kind of grabbing what little hair I have left and like holding on to the handles, like all of these things that are these kind of vain attempts at control because I'm not completely convinced that she's going to get us home safely. Now you contrast that with how I drive, how I ride in the car with my wife when she drives. Uh, you'll be happy to know that I don't do any of that with her. Um, you know, I'm not yelling at her to slow down. I'm not reminding her to stop at the stop signs. I'm not uh, gripping the, the seats with white knuckles because I trust that my wife is going to get us home safely. Right? It, there's a different sense of surrender in that case. I trust that, yeah, Chase will be okay. She'll get us there. She'll get us where we need to go. And that's the second thing that's really important about this scene. It's not just that we realize we're not in control, but it's that we realize who is. That we surrender is only really possible when we trust God. Real surrender is only possible when we trust God. 
Now, it wouldn't exactly be fair to call it surrender when I ride with my daughter, because while I don't exactly have control, it's this kind of limited amount of, of surrender that I've given for a prescribed period of time to get to a certain end, right? So I give up a little bit of control because I want her to learn how to drive, but I'm not really trusting her. I kind of grit my teeth and allow her to do it because in the end, I think it'll be what I want, which is her learning to drive. And this is often how we deal with other situations in our life, right? Like we don't actually entrust our lives to God in any significant way. We kind of grit our teeth and hold on to it and really maybe we'll give a little bit to God, but only if God works it out the way that we want God to. Like only if God really makes me get what I want in the end anyway, am I okay giving up a little bit of control. But the moment it starts to veer, the moment it doesn't quite look like it's going to go where I want it to go, then I try to grab a hold of it again. And while that's completely understandable, and it is how we all operate, it is how the disciples operate, it's not actually surrender. But surrender can only happen because we trust the God that Jesus reveals. Because we come to find ourselves believing that that God actually cares for us. This is why Jesus spent so much of his ministry focusing on who God was, who God is. When you look at the parables that Jesus told, it's why we come across again and again the story of you know, the good father who welcomes us home despite our foolishness and our rebellion. We see a loving creator who cares for the birds and for the flowers. And so Jesus says, certainly, how much more will God care for you? It's a, the widow who desperately seeks to find her lost coin. And so we can trust that even when we wander, God pursues us. It's the shepherd who leaves the 99 and, and finds the one and carries us back and throws a party. Right? Again and again and again, Jesus drives home the message. You, you can trust God. You can trust him. Even when you don't understand. Even when it feels like success as you define it is eluding you. You can trust Trust is essential to surrender. I love how um, author and priest Richard Rohr says it. He says this, The key, of course, is to whom we are surrendering. A Trinitarian God, the life of faith is learning how to rest in an ultimate love and how to draw upon an infinite source. On a very practical level, you will then be able to trust that you are being held and guided. Please don't hear me as adopting a fatalistic approach as though you can work to change or improve your situation. Quite the contrary, you can. But I'm saying that what first comes to your heart and soul must be a yes instead of a no, trust instead of resistance. When you can lead with yes and allow yourself to see God in all moments, you'll recognize that nothing is ever wasted. Trinity is in the business of generating life and light from all situations, even the bad and sinful ones. I love that thought, nothing is ever wasted. Hold on to that. We're going to swing back to that um, come Easter. But then he talks about this idea that Trinity, God expressed in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is at work in generating life and light from all situations. And that is why paradoxically the cross teaches us to trust God. 
that even at the worst, God is still present, still working to bring life and hope and a future. This is what the writer of Proverbs means when he writes what Laura read for us earlier this morning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. We can only trust like that if we actually believe that God is who Jesus reveals God to be. If God is the good father, the, the widow who pursues us, the shepherd who finds us, the loving creator who provides for us. If we come to believe that God really is the one that Jesus reveals, then we come to find that we can trust him. We can surrender our plans, our expectations of our preferred future, knowing that we can trust him to bring us home. Our trust is not in our version of success. It's not in us getting the end that we want. It's not in a result, and honestly, it's not even in our own faithfulness. Our trust is not in our ability to trust. It's not in your ability to muster up enough trust that you never have to deal with your own desire for control again. That's not the point. Our trust is actually in the one, the God that Jesus reveals. And surrender is learning how to let go and trust that that God will, in the end, be able to bring us home safely. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, you must do this. I can't. And maybe that's the invitation for us this morning and this week as we reflect on this passage. Is to together practice and learn how to increasingly turn to our our Father, our Creator, the one who loves us, and say, you must do this. I can't. Or maybe to, to quote from Jesus, not my will but yours be done. We're going to end our time together this morning by taking communion, or or at least this portion, and then move into a time of worship. And in communion, we're reminded what this God is like. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, says, God, after all, did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us. How then will he not with him freely give all things to us? As we come to communion and we take the bread and the juice and we remember Christ's death on the cross, we see in that act the depth of God's love for us. And we see why that we can be safe in surrendering to God. Because this God will go all the way to death and hell itself for us and come out the other side with us. This is why we take communion. This is what we remember as we celebrate together. So for those of you at home, I would invite you to, to kind of grab your elements, whatever you have, coffee and you know, cookies or you know, juice and crackers, whatever you got, grab it, have it ready. Um, for us here, 
we're just going to invite you. There's a couple of different places spread throughout. There's, um, you see in the middle of the room there, um, you see up front here, there's also back at the offering stations, uh, there's some communion cups there. And we have these handy-dandy little uh, COVID cups. Yeah, these are pretty great, right? So you have the wafer on top, um, and you have the juice underneath. There's two different. These things are tricky. If you've been watching the last couple of weeks, you've seen me um, flabbergasted at trying to open these things up. So, uh, so they're tricky. Um, but what I'm going to do, I, I want to say a prayer for us. And as I just kind of say this prayer, I want to invite you, and this is okay. I know we normally bow our heads and close our eyes, but if you're here, as I say a prayer, if you want to make your way to grab your communion element, um, feel free to do that. And then I'm going to read through kind of Paul's liturgy that he gives us in 1 Corinthians, and we'll take communion together. Uh, so let me pray, and as I pray, feel free to grab your communion elements. Father, um, we come to you as people who are really bad at surrender. Most of our lives, we've been taught uh, the opposite. We've been taught um, really particular ways to keep control and to take control and to make sure that we steer our life in the way that it needs to go but we recognize the limitations of that. And we recognize our inability to get ourselves home on our own. So would you teach us to surrender? Teach us first to know you and to understand the depth of your love for us so that we might come to trust you and to feel safe in surrendering. And ultimately, Teach us how to turn to you and say, not our will, but yours be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We read in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Our creator, our shepherd, the widow who pursues us, the father who loves us and gives himself for us. We, we pray that we would come to see you as Jesus reveals you, to understand who you are, and the depth of your love for us, and to be able to turn to you in love and offer you our lives to find success as we surrender, knowing that we can't do it. You must. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.